Lab Talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab Talk with Laura. Welcome to Lab Talk with Laura. Today we're doing a very special episode. Um, we're going to have a different format where we're going to listen to some interviews that I did at a meeting that I went to in September. It was the meeting of the Southern California Earthquake Center, um, a really cool acronym, uh, SCEC, if you say it out loud. Um, but it's a really cool community of people who study earthquakes from a lot of different angles. And so it was fun to get to talk to people about that. And so we're going to check out those interviews. And then I have some people joining me in the studio to talk about the interviews as we listen to them. So if you guys want to just go ahead and introduce yourselves. Uh, my name is Ben Alvik. I'm co-founder of uh, Fully Rooted. It's a juice and kombucha company in Rhode Island. Hey all, it's Raquel back again. I'm PhD student in the geoscience department at UMass Amherst. Uh, hey y'all, Edwin, again, back again, uh, and I'm a PhD student in uh, molecular and cellular biology in the vet and animal science department. Let's listen to one of our interviews here. I am Emily Brodsky. I am a professor of earth and planetary sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I am a longtime participant in SCEC and I have served on the board of directors for a number of years. I study earthquakes like everyone here, but um, I tend to focus on the mechanics and physics of earthquakes and what we can constrain observationally about process. And so that has led me into studies of um, earthquake statistics and how earthquakes interact and how they're triggered and begin. Um, I also do a lot of work on actually looking at fault rocks and in sort of forensic mode, trying to figure out what we can tell by looking at the rocks about how uh, the forces add up on the fault. And I've also done some more exotic things like take the temperature of faults and look at water wells and how they interact with faults. and. Um, Things like that. Cool. Um, how do you take a temperature of a fault? <laughs> uh, you dig a hole and you put a thermometer on it. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, and the idea there is that one of the big unknowns in earthquake physics is the friction on the fault. So if you actually want to do figure out which way the fault's going to move and how much it's going to move, you have to add up all the forces on it. And we know pretty well what's pushing the fault forward, but it's hard to know what's holding it back because you kind of have to be there during the earthquake to measure those forces. But you could also, um, we realize you could also go after an earthquake, right after an earthquake's been go is over. And um, when the fault moved, when the two sides rubbed against each other, they uh, elevated the temperature. It's like rubbing your hands together to keep them warm, which I understand you do in Massachusetts more <laughs> than we do in uh, California. And so when you rub the two sides of the fault together, it makes them warm. And so you could stick a thermometer in there if you get there fast enough and kind of reverse engineer the problem and figure out the friction. 
Okay, so you're kind of chasing after an earthquake in that case. Yeah, in that case, you were absolutely chasing after an earthquake. And I think our biggest success in that strategy was after the big Japan earthquake, the Tohoku earthquake. Um, in 2011, uh, we went out with a drilling vessel, the Chikyu from Japan, and uh, drilled a hole into the fault, which was under seven kilometers of water and about a kilometer of rock, and stuck some thermometers. We put 55 thermometers duct taped to a piece of climbing rope onto the fault <laughs> and left them there for about a year and came on back and pulled them up using a robot on the seafloor and um, backed out the friction. Easy. <laughs> um, and so what did you learn about the friction on that fault? We learned that the friction was much lower than most people would have anticipated. And that's important both because it tells you about how come that earthquake slipped so much, which made that catastrophic tsunami. And it's also important because it's very much tied up with earthquake predictability. How predictable earthquakes are has to do with how much energy they release in each individual event compared to how much energy is accumulating. If they get rid of everything that's in the system each time, then you know you have to wait a certain amount of time till the fault reloads and recharges and is ready for the next earthquake. If, on the other hand, they hang on to a little bit of reserve energy, okay. then it's possible you could get another earthquake kind of any time, right? Uh, okay. And so um, the very low friction suggests that it is really a complete energy release. And then there is a certain degree of predictability in the system in that you have to recharge the fault. Okay, so in a way it was good news to find out that the friction was lower, or is that maybe a little bit yeah, too? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think that might be right. It, okay. Maybe it was good news, but it was um, the Earth doesn't really care about our opinion of the friction. <laughs> At the very least, you were able to understand that, yes, that yes. better, and then that yeah. will help with yeah. understanding what might happen in the future better, too. Yes. Very cool. Um, what other approaches do you have to understanding faults? What other kind of things have you done in the field or in the well, lab? I, I've been very involved with human-made earthquakes recently, human-induced seismicity. Oh. And we've do, just finished a study where we looked at uh, water wells or deep injection wells where people are disposing wastewater deep under the ground and comparing where the earthquakes happen um, in different kinds of wells. And we found that those that occur in the basement, um, when people eject there, those earthquakes that are made by people are much closer and smaller and near the well, much more compact cloud than when people eject into sedimentary rocks. And that's um, interesting because in general, we advise people to eject into sedimentary rocks in preference to the basement has been historically the advice that seismologists give. And it appears that the data suggests that perhaps the opposite strategy might be advisable. Oh, okay. So why, why was the um, strategy initially to inject them into sedimentary rocks? Uh, well, the idea, um, the biggest, most dangerous faults are likely in the basement, and so the idea was to avoid activating them just by keeping the water far away from them. Ah, okay. But it turns out that when you inject into sedimentary rocks, you very efficiently get that stress 
into the rocks. The water pressure pushes of the squishy sedimentary rocks really uh, easily. Okay. And then that ends up in turn pushing on the basement faults. Whereas when you inject into the basement, you're actually not very efficiently getting the water, the stress into the rocks. And so even though it's closer to the faults, it's not act- actually activating them as efficiently. Oh, wow. So how did you end up in this field of study? Oh, dumb blind luck. <laughs> um, I knew I wanted to do geophysics since about my second year in college. Well, the summer between my first and second year, I took a good drive cross country, like any good disgruntled American. <laughs> um, and I uh, think I was influenced by our national park system. And I got to Yellowstone and I said, this is what I want to do. Nice. So um, so I knew I wanted to do geophysics, and then I got to grad school, and the person who studied earthquakes was just seemed more interesting to work with than anyone else. <laughs> um, so maybe just one last thing before we uh, finish. Um, so at the end of my radio show, we play a little game called GTA, guess that acronym, <laughs> to kind of get at the fact that there's a lot of jargon in science and it can make it hard to communicate. And um, and so normally I have a comedian co-host and we make them guess acronyms, but since I'm the host right now, um, I'm going to ask you if there are any acronyms that you use frequently that you want to give me to see if I can guess what they mean. We called this drilling project JFAST and everybody thought it was an acronym, but it wasn't. Oh. It was just... Um, it, so <laughs> JFAST? It, it was just its name. Uh, <laughs> uh, Japan Fast Drilling Project. Uh, ah, okay, nice. But uh, I, I'm actually it. very anti-acronym. So, <laughs> That's good, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm constantly editing my students' papers to take abbreviations and acronyms out of them. Nice. Oh, I got one. Well, LFE. LFE? Yeah. Hmm... Okay, so you want to guess what LFE is? I think it's low frequency emissions. Low frequency emissions. I don't know emissions. if emissions. What would it be? Emissions. Mm. Emissions. LFE. Is it LFE or LFE? <laughs> Wait, what do you mean LFE? It like, sounded like she said it's a, LFE. It's an acronym, right? so it's letters. I know, but is it E L P H E? No, no, it's L F E. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Low. Frequency. Yes. Earthquake. Oh. Okay. Uh, and it has follow-ups. <laughs> I'm going to say E might be for earthquake and maybe low frequency earthquake. Well done. Okay, nice. And then do you know what a VLFE is? Uh, very low frequency earthquake. <laughs> very, very well done. <laughs> and a ULVLFE? ULVFE? Yes. Um... Ultra long, very low frequency. Earthquake. Ultra low, vol- uh, <laughs> uh, very ultra. <laughs> Wait, I did it wrong. This happens uh, a lot. Where somebody... LFE is an ultra very low frequency earthquake. <laughs> Does that mean just even less frequent? <laughs> it means that yes, that it rings the pitch of the earthquake. So low frequency means that the waves that are come out are very low pitch. Then there's even lower pitch and then there's even lower pitch. <laughs> and we didn't get very creative about naming them, did we? <laughs> and so then um 
What does that mean about the experience of the earthquake? Does that have any? Does that affect how people? Well, in general, none of those are felt. Oh, okay, that's what um, that means. But they're very important in trying to uh, figure out the process of fault slip. That there's this whole zoo of things that are not felt that happen under different circumstances, in different places, or different times, and they're all part of the earthquake cycle. So piecing together how all the U-V-L-F-E's, V-L-F-E's, and L-F-E's all lead up to an earthquake cycle um, is part of putting together the whole story. Oh, very good. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This is great. No problem. <laughs> Thanks for doing it. I have a question before we go on. Like, yeah. About the, the low frequency and the very low frequency... Um, earthquakes is it a cumulative thing like do they add up to these big earthquakes we see or are they just separate uh, events through a whole earthquake cycle yeah through the year or like is this a cumulative threshold thing right like an action potential where like it won't fire until you reach a certain level like do these add up do we know this as the geologist in well the room. so i'm the person who's gonna have to answer all the yeah, 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 questions yeah, 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 good because totally. i ironically during this show about science rarely talk about my own science but i don't actually study earthquake frequency but so what i would understand about that is that basically you know you have the way earthquakes happen is you have a fault in a rock so it's like a break in a rock and they're squeezing there's some force that's pushing them but they're stuck because of the friction on them and so the size of an earthquake is basically like how stuck is it like how much force can build up before it finally overcomes that and when you have those low frequency earthquakes i think what's happening is that they're actually ones where there's not very much friction so they'll kind of move slower and so it's not a big fast rupture it's a slower rupture that sends out slower waves that we almost can't feel as humans but that can be picked up by seismometers so they can be detected and so that's actually a lower earthquake hazard when you have something that slides more frequently but at a slower rate right so i don't know if that answers yeah so they're sliding apart it's much easier to get these places to slide apart so they don't have as much of an effect yeah how you feel the earth right so there's kind of different way variations on that there's like creep which is where it's just moving constantly and so there's no earthquakes but the ground does move a lot like really dramatically and then there's ones where they're called like slow slip events where it's not happening constantly maybe every 12 months though it'll go and it'll take like a a day to move but it'll move slowly and so it's still not it doesn't create as much earthquake hazard but it can create hazard around it if that's moving then something that's stuck nearby is going to get loaded up with that that stress Mm -hmm. okay and is the you talked about there being less friction is that because of like those rocks are more ductile or just what what's going on that yeah, I think it's a complicated story why there's more friction in some places and people are really like working to understand that for sure, like poor fluid pressure can play a role in that. Um, like if there's a lot of fluids that can lubricate a fault. Um, what kind of fluids would be in a fault, Laura? What kind of fluids? Yeah, I mean water. I just think or, yeah, we say that a lot yeah. when we're talking about geo what geo stuff, but or like if we're just brine. mean, yeah. But like yeah. sometimes it's hard to imagine. What do you mean? There's fluid what underwater, fluids, right? Right. Or like Emily was talking about these these earthquakes get triggered because they inject water into mm-hmm. the ground when they're fracking. They have a lot of wastewater. Yeah. Okay. That was and so they'll inject that into the ground. If it ends up on a fault, it can release the friction on the fault and 
trigger an earthquake. And for the non-geologist, mm. she was talking about layers. She was talking about the basement, and she was also talking about the sediment, right? Yeah. Which one's above which? Which one's closer to the surface? The sediment is okay. on, is closer to okay. the surface. I th- yeah. Sometimes I think we named it basement because it meant it was at the bottom. The lowest. Was, like, yeah, funny. the basement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to talk about earthquake triggers. I just think that we frame a lot of things in geoscience as like, what was the one thing that triggered it? Mm. But something that this conversation and just that we've been having about like things building up or there being like a constant state and then there are things that change that. Like I always feel like it's all related. Like it's maybe not a trigger, but there are conditions. There are like several conditions that have different time skills and operate differently on that one like particular event, but they like all add up to equal something. Right, and she was talking about how we measure these different parameters to better predict these events, right? And that's yeah. why I asked like, are these little like low frequency things, are they are they ad- additive in that sense? Mm-hmm. And also like, if you're talking about, like we were, Ben and I were having a conversation how like California's long overdue a massive earthquake. Right. Is this because of all these different measurements that they're making in the low frequency events or because of the kind of fault that California's on? It's not even about the low frequency that they can measure these active, I call them loud frequency events. I, the I don't know. low versus high frequency. Yeah. yeah, I think high frequency would create faster waves. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm not a seismologist. I know, so I'm, I know, like, I know, I know. I'm speaking a little bit out of turn. Hopefully, no angry seismologists call up to be like. Right. But also, like, I'm influenced by Hollywood in the sense that you have people who like are looking at a Richter scale and they're like tiny, tiny, tiny things and like, oh my God, it's coming, it's coming. Is that how it is? Like, is it an additive effect in that sense? Like, the predictability is like, all right, we've had like 1,200 low frequency events in the last month. We're definitely going to get something. I think you get, I think, I think more likely certain kinds of faults produce high frequency events and certain kinds produce low frequency events. And so the total amount of like energy release might be the same, but it's released in really different ways. And one is much more hazardous than the other. So like in California, yeah, there might be small events, but it's not the prediction is still definitely not there for like exactly what you were talking about, Raquel. It's like the conditions are complex and it's all interacting, you know? Um, But the more measurements you make, the more you can understand and get closer to actually being able to say like, here's the conditions and what we expect. So how, how is something predicted over like a longer period of time? Are things mapped out? Um, Yeah. That's areas and then different friction at different areas of a map to figure (laughs) out different things that's a great question uh, so over time the way that we understand when and where earthquakes have happened um, is something that we'll hear about in other interviews so maybe oh, that's a good cue for <laughs> us to, to, to go into another interview my name is Kate Scherer and I work with the US Geological Survey in Pasadena California so I would call myself an earthquake geologist which means that I study the landscape around me to understand how often in the past large earthquakes have occurred on specific faults, and then over longer time scales, how quickly those faults are moving uh, to understand their relative hazard. Okay, and so how do you go about getting at those questions? A lot of hot field work days. <laughs> so um, to understand the timing of earthquakes in the past, we usually excavate trenches across the faults. Um, so we'd go to a place, for example, where uh, you have a very frequent uh, sedimentation event. So you can envision uh, mud flows that would come down out of the hills and cover the landscape. And that maybe those happen every couple of decades. And then every 100 or 200 years, you have an earthquake rip through that area. 
And you can envision that that mud flow that came down in the past would get torn up and the surface of it would get offset. Um, and then, you know, allow some additional time to pass, another decade or two, and you have new mud flows on top of that surface that are clean and unbroken. So we excavate trenches across the fault in um, areas that have these high sedimentation rates to look for that pattern of material below that's been broken up and then material above that's not been broken that shows it wasn't faulted. People often think it would be like a layer cake that's been cut, and then if you put a new swath of frosting across the top that would be what you'd envision to say you know the cut happened and then this new material came down so the difference between the layers that are broken and layers that are unbroken and so how big are the trenches usually they vary in size quite a bit Um, often a sort of classic trench is a technique that's used uh, quite a bit in the consulting industry to help uh, landowners and engineers know what kind of deformations they might be Uh, experiencing or if there's faulting on property. So a typical trench is sort of a traditional trench would be about uh, three feet wide and maybe, you know, 20 to 30 to even 100 feet long. Um, And then sometimes in order to look deeper in time, we'll make them wider uh, using, you know, even an excavator to dig uh, sort of a many feet wide, many more feet down to get better examination of time. So how do you decide where you're going to put those trenches? (laughs) Yeah, it's a confluence of things. Um, For the last decade, I've been working on understanding the timing and the magnitude of faults that have happened on the San Andreas, uh, sorry, magnitude of earthquakes that have happened on the San Andreas fault. So... um, in order to do that, the way to think about magnitude is if you have a small earthquake, say a magnitude 6, it might just be a couple tens of miles long, but a magnitude 7 will be, you know, hundreds of miles long, basically, 100, 100 to 200 miles long. And so what we want to do is sort of have locations along the fault that allow us to see that an individual earthquake was, say, whether it's, you know, 20 miles long or is it 50 miles long, and therefore is it moderate in magnitude or large in magnitude. Um, So to locate them on one level, it's what science question are we going after? Do, you know, do I want, do I need some more data in a particular region of the fault because I, no one's worked there, and so we need to just fill in the gaps. And then at a more local scale, we're really dependent on the local landscape to really freshen the surface of the earth soon after an earthquake. So basically, we trench at the bottom of steep hills so that we have mud flows (laughs) that cover it up. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, How did you get into this field? Oh, boy. So I was a Latin American studies major before a geology major, and I'd taken a couple geology courses as, like, my science requirements. Um, I always liked science, but um, I also liked political science. So uh, I did a semester with the National Honors Council that you do, like, a site-specific semester. Um, We were in El Paso, Texas, in Ciudad Juarez, studying borderland issues. Okay. Okay. and it was really great, uh, but I, 
on the way back, I, well, I had a, it was a really awesome experience, um, but on the way back, I was thinking about it sort of midway through my college career, and I just didn't see what I would do with that degree for a living. It was um, maybe too much on the social sciences for my personality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I was intrigued in a, a problem that I thought might be more tractable. <laughs> might <laughs> may be wrong there. <laughs> but, um, and on the way back, I was with some friends, and we stopped in Baja, and I, we were sitting on the beach, and like most people, my friends were, you know, sitting on the beach, looking out at the water, enjoying the view, and I had my back to the ocean, and I was looking at the cliff behind me, which has this uplifted, uh, basically, set of gravels and sands that have been brought up by tectonic forces, and I was like, this is so cool. And so it just got me thinking that I would double major in geology and Latin American studies. And by the time I graduated, though, I was just a geology major. (laughs) So I just found it really um, the mix of hard science, but with very human applications, especially on the hazard side, is very Mm. appealing. Yeah. This is kind of going back to the trenching. So how do you know when you are looking at trenches in different places, you're trying to figure out if the same earthquake has come through? How do you tell if it's the same earthquake that you're looking at? Yeah, so the first level that we do is to date the earthquake. So we use radiocarbon dating. Um, You'll date basically the whole sequence of layers that you've exposed. But you can think of it that, you know, really honing in on some horizon of which you can see the layers below are affected by some earthquake and the layers above are not and the age of the earthquake then is bracketed by the radiocarbon dates of the sample above or the layer above and the layer below. Um, And so then you go to the next site down, say, you know, 10 miles down the road or 20 miles down the road and say, oh, it has an earthquake around the same time period. So we make the assumption that... uh, 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 the reasonable assumption that these are large ground rupturing earthquakes. Um, at the meeting today, we heard that you need about a meter of displacement before um, before it's really resolved at the surface, uh, for example. And so a meter of displacement is a solid like magnitude six and a half earthquake. Um, so we know that those typically have a length, and therefore I can sort of string these paleoseismic sites down the fault and get some estimate of the length of the, of the earthquake. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so what do you think are some of the big questions facing you or challenges facing you? <laughs> um, in paleoseismology, a big challenge does come down to that dating uh, fundamentally, we can't tell the difference between a single very long, with, a, with the age uncertainties we have, we can't tell the difference between a single very long rupture, which would mean a very large magnitude event, say magnitude 7.9 or magnitude 8. Uh-huh. We can't tell the difference between that and, uh, say, a, sort of a string of earthquakes that happen along the fault. You have, say, three magnitude 7.2s that rupture you know, within 10 years of each other, it would look the same with our data set. And that is super important because on one level, you know, (laughs) uh, magnitude 7.8 would be uh, very, a terrifying experience, but on the other hand, it'd be one and done. <laughs> Whereas oh, okay. if you yeah. have a magnitude 7.2, it only ruptures a portion of the fault. And the question is, if we see in the past that usually the whole thing sort of unzips, you know, how long do we have before the next one? How likely is it? Those are the kinds of questions that, you know, serving the federal system, we will certainly be asked. And so uh, being able to do better to discriminate the actual rupture lengths of these past earthquakes is where we need to to work. Um, is there anything about your research that hasn't come up that you want to touch on? 
I'd say the other thing that we do, um, and really where I've spent a lot of time over the past five years, is trying to understand how uh, fast faults move. So the premise is that the faster a fault moves, the more frequently it's going to have a larger earthquake to get to shed that accumulated strain. Um, and so I've uh, really enjoyed in the past five years working on a series of thrust faults, which are sort of the mountain builders in Southern California. They're bringing the mountains up over the basins. And in that case, you're doing things like trying to understand when, um, say, a hill slope that's shedding a bunch of sand and gravel out onto what we would call an alluvial fan, what the age of that alluvial fan is that might be cut by a fault. And in, in that case, you're doing something like cosmogenic dating. So for me, it's been exciting to learn new techniques uh, in terms of dating landforms, which is different than dating, dating the actual rocks themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a challenging process, but a, a really exciting sort of field setting and technique setting to work in. Cool. Yeah. So we did have one experience that I was always horrified. There was a place I was working that we had, this is in Southern California where there's uh, quite a few black bears. And um, we had a trench open that had, that would pond with water. So we had to pump water out of the bottom because you're hitting the water table. Um, and we would pump it out during the day we were there, and at night it would start to sort of fill up again. And we knew that all the animals were coming in and drinking out of it. You'd uh, see their footprints oh, around yeah. uh, in the <laughs> A morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or when we would drive up, you know, the uh, foxes or bobcats, we saw sort of skittering away. Oh, wow. And there's definitely bears in the mountains uh, that we're working in. And um, one morning we actually found bear claw prints, like as it as it scraped its way out of the trench, you could see these giant claw marks. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of, you know, that, to think that here I am in this sort of narrow slot that a bear was sitting in <laughs> hours before. That would be kind of exciting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a good story. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kate. This was great. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. You can also check out old episodes of Lab Talk with Laura on iTunes and SoundCloud or any other podcast app that you normally use and give us a like on Facebook to stay up to date with the show. This is interesting. And actually, this connects a little bit to your work because you do a lot of paleo work as well. And what I was wondering, at least remarking, was like, you know, the the job of this paleo seismologist Mm -hmm. is to look back in time in order to see the future in some way, shape, or form, right? Yeah. Which is kind of what you do too, right? You look back in time to kind of predict the future. But that also puts you at a scale that is like really hard for me with what I do to like wrap my mind around, right? Like she talked about a most recent earthquake being 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, like and you want it to be more recent so that you have a less likelihood of another earthquake. Right. Right? Yeah. But, like, I, I mean, it's it's just a remark. It's just like, it, it blows my mind talking to paleontologists. <laughs> it's just that, like, you guys look so far back in order to see so far in the future. Right. Well, and there's this irony that, like, you're like, wow, you're studying something that happened 2,000 years ago. That's so far in the back. And that's, like, far for an earthquake study, but for, like, compared to what Raquel studies, how long right. ago are your thing? Oh, yeah, I studied the Cretaceous. So that was, you know, like 90 million years ago. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, we have this... People talk about time scale, and it's like a, it's like a, it can be, like, 
a point of debate because some geoscientists are like, well, you should study this time period because it's more relevant to this. And other people mm-hmm. are like, have their own reasons why other time periods are more relevant. Mm-hmm. But I like that you made the connection, Edwin, because it just reminds me that like the Earth is in the way that the processes work, there is also a process to preserve things that have happened. And some geosciences, like, that's just their job. They just pick up these clues and try to make a story out of it. And it's like a fun detective work side of geosciences. But does that affect, like, your... The time you spend studying your PhD? Like, let's make it practical. Like, if you're spending time looking so far behind and making these predictions and stuff, like how does that affect your timeline in terms of getting to certain answers? Because, so that's the thing, when you're a paleoscientist, you're not necessarily the one looking to the future at all. I help people who look to the future understand the past so they can look to the future, but I'm not, like I don't do any work myself on projecting um, what could happen in the future. But I, what you do can be used to, it to is extrapolate used. To There the would future, be no, right? no climate models exactly. without okay. paleoceanographers going back and finding out what the climate used to mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Yeah, so. But it's nice because, like, uh, well, this um, scientist talked about the human aspect of geoscience, and yeah. that's, like, literally the opposite of what I say to people. I'm like, I love what I study because I get to, like, look in a microscope and see a whole world that has nothing to do with humans. Mm. So it was funny to think that it, some some people are drawn to geoscience because there is that applied um, aspect of it where you could actually work, like, every day to help pe- keep people safe. Yeah. I, like, love my refuge from people. <laughs> <laughs> but how, many, how quickly... This is another question I have, and I don't know if this is going to come up in any of your other interviews. Like, how quickly do these events imprint on the earth yeah and well the other thing to that is an event can happen but it needs to be preserved so in paleontology we talk a lot about preservation potential like and just you need perfect conditions and i say perfect like i'm meaning that word like perfect conditions to like preserve a fossil for example like uh, the soft parts of an organism and so when I was listening to this interview and hearing about them looking back in the sedimentary record they're basically trenching so you dig into a cliff until you have an undisturbed surface and then you study that surface um, it's it's kind of just like it has to be perfect it has to be perfect that the depositional environment could preserve what happened and then 10,000 years later, nothing could can disturb that area. Then right. 10, right, so that we can yeah. go and see it how it was. Right, and make it a road into a mountain. Right, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or somebody didn't put a building on top of the right Exactly. Or exactly. <laughs> like, well, so she talked, they target you know, hill, the bottom of hills because that's the place where things are being deposited because they're falling off the hill. But it's not like earthquakes only happen at the bottom of hills, you know? Right, so, like, right. if you're in a spot that where the earthquakes are underwater, where, you know, like L.A., there's there's... Um, faults out in the ocean and trying to study those is a lot different than studying the ones that are on land. Okay, let's listen to some more interviews. I'm Ellen Yu. I'm the products manager for the Southern California Earthquake Data Center. I work as part of uh, the Caltech Seismological Lab and um, what my um, organization does is we archive all the uh, seismic waveforms recorded uh, by the Southern California Seismic Network. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, <laughs> so could you um, maybe explain what's a seismic waveform? <laughs> sure. So uh, basically what people do is they install sensors in the ground and these um, these sensors will basically measure ground velocity and acceleration. And this is happening 
um, 24-7. And so these signals then are telemetered uh, over to a central processing area. In, in this case, it's uh, Pasadena. And we have uh, uh, basically servers that will take this data input and dis basically determine did an earthquake happen. If a whole bunch of sensors light up at the same time, then they may determine that this is an earthquake and they will measure the magnitude and the origin and that will populate um, an earthquake catalog. And so when people um, feel something in Southern California, they'll come to our website and you know see that there was an earthquake of a certain magnitude. That's that are part of our responsibility is to distribute this earthquake information. Okay, yeah, nice. And so, um, in your work, are you collaborating with other scientists a lot, or like what is your day to day like? Yeah. Well, I would. I mean, let's see here. I collaborate um, with scientists, but I probably mostly collaborate with other um, staff operational staff, uh, both in the seismic network and also with other seismic networks. So for example, the Northern California Seismic Network, um, we share a lot of information and practices. Um, and each, of course, uh, to operate a network, you need people who are expertise, uh, they have an expertise in installing the station, they have uh, uh, a expertise in getting the data over. In my group, our expertise is in uh, basically storing the waveform data, making sure that it's properly backed up, and also writing code so that researchers and the general public can get this data back out. Um, so how did you get into this? <laughs> yeah, that I kind of, um, it, it's kind of a twisty road. Okay, uh, so, yeah. Well, I, I did have a undergraduate degree in uh, physics okay. and, Asian, and Asian studies. I double majored, but I, I uh, went into graduate school in geophysics, and that's because I, I always had an interest in the outdoors. And so I thought that um, this was a great way to combine my love of physics and uh, maybe also just the physical earth we're in. That's kind of how my interests were. So I started out in graduate school uh, in a PhD program and about maybe a year or so in I realized, you know what, like um, I while I enjoy working on problems, I, I can't say that like the, res the scientific research was something that appealed to me. Or, um, and so I decided to, um, I guess I decided to leave with my master's. Okay. Okay. So then after that, I was looking for a job and I, um, uh, let's see here, and I was saying, well, who wants a, who wants someone with a geophysics degree? Yeah. <laughs> and I, um. And I found out oil companies. Oh, <laughs> like okay, so, yeah, yeah. So I went to work in uh, Houston for Schlumberger. And one thing that attracted me is not only my geophysics background, but also in uh, geophysics, uh, we, they worked mostly in the Unix platform. Okay. And uh, at the time, I'm, I'm betraying my age here. This is in the early <laughs> 90s. Um, they're like... Geophysics was one of those few sciences, I think, that actually used the, the Unix platform a lot, like okay. pretty heavily, out of the earth sciences, that is. Yeah. So, um, so they they got me in, and I was basically doing software support for people, uh, for geologists and oil companies, and that's where I picked up a lot of more IT experience, more database expertise. Yeah. And, and one thing I did find when working in software support, actually, is that that was something that did... Um, really gelled with me. I really enjoyed someone saying, okay, I need help uh, getting this technical problem down. Can 
you can you help me? Yeah. And so uh, I did very well in that line of work. Um, and uh, but I uh, I'm from California, and I missed uh, California. Ah, okay. So I did. Although I, I have to say it was it was nice working for a large uh, company, and oil companies are very technically oriented. There are a lot of a lot of infrastructure, a lot of training, a lot of support. So that was hard to leave. Um, yeah. But uh, I decided that I wanted uh, to go back to California, mm-hmm. and um, and then one of my friends from graduate school basically said, "Well, you have an expertise in databases. Um, Caltech, is, the Seismic Network, is looking for a database administrator." Oh, cool. And so I moved, and that, I'm, that's kind of how I'm in my current position. Nice. Well, is there anything about your work or your career that we haven't touched on that you want to talk about? <laughs> oh, gee. Uh, I don't. I <laughs> well, because again, uh, my group actually we work with. You know, I guess we, we work with the data and we and with users using the data. So yeah. I, what I have always found very fascinating is actually. Um, how users work with software, yeah, <laughs> and that that has been actually the biggest challenge. You know, trying to understand what people want because a lot of times you're trying to create something, and and the user doesn't know really what they want, and yeah. and it may take a number of iterations um, to get it right. Yeah, so that I think that's uh, one surprising thing from my work. Yeah, it seems to me like you've you basically shifted gears and and you've now had a career in facilitating yeah. science. Like that's you're right. really you're really like helping others right. accomplish their goals. And that's right. really cool though. That's yeah. an important role to play and one that you might not think about. Like we you might think, oh data, it's just there. Yeah. We have it. But yeah. you actually need somebody who's able to distribute that in a yeah. way that's useful to people. Yeah, I think you said that really well, actually, that um, I think a lot of modern day science is actually teamwork. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of there. There are definitely people who are doing more analysis and research. And but then there's also these other people um, supporting to, to um, logistics who try to provide that data or um, present the data in a way that the user can can use it. So, yeah, nice. it's great. Cool. <laughs> We're going to jump right to another interview. Here we go. So my my name is Ahmed Al-Banna. Uh, I am an assistant professor in civil and environmental engineering at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I am from Egypt, Cairo specifically, and uh, I came to the U.S. for my PhD, which I completed at Caltech, and then I finished a postdoc in physics at UC Santa Barbara before joining the department at UIUC in 2013. Cool. <laughs> nice. So um, can you give me like the like broad overview of like what kind of research do you do? Sure. So I am interested in understanding how things break and these things of interest to me could be as large as surface of planets. So we create models to understand say earthquakes and faulting, but also <coughs> the thing, these things could be as small as a fiber in our bone. So we are interested in a broad range of problems where fragility and fractures are important. And because fracture usually happen violently, so we're also interested in the waves that and the dynamics that are generated by these fractures. And we try as engineers to design materials that are uh, have having better fracture resistance and can um, resist wave propagation patterns or, or modulate wave propagation better. Okay. 
So um, what is the main, is there like one way that you tackle this problem or are there several ways that you tackle it? Yes, definitely. I, so my work is primarily theoretical and computational. So we use, uh, we create models of reality uh, on computers. So this is our lab. Um, and and to do this, we need to make some assumptions and approximations. But then, once we get the numerical machinery cranking, we can explore uh, different aspects of of the physics of the problem. So we basically use computers to solve these kinds of problems. Okay. And so, what's going into those solutions? Like, how how do you set those? Simulations up. Yes. Yeah, so let's take the example of of what I mentioned about fracture on planetary surfaces, for example. Then, in order to set this problem, there are different different ways to do this. There are idealized ways where we would like to understand the fundamentals of the physics going behind that. So in this case, we study idealized systems with some form of idealized geometry. So we uh, we go, for example, and uh, build a model of a piece of the crust and assume that there is a fault existing and then we define how this fault is being loaded and what properties of this fault might have and and this information we can get from the work of other people who are uh, testing rock properties or observing faults in nature etc and basically uh, these systems are governed by mathematical structures called called differential equations. So we use uh, numerical techniques to discretize and, and solve these equations to find solutions, how solutions vary as a function of position, how solutions vary as a function of time. And we look at quantities like if a fault gets moving, then when it's going to stop and what kind of damage it's expected to produce. And if in some cases we are capable of of making this fault move and stop, move and stop, so we can look at large history of events that might not be um, accessible directly from observation. So we can also look back into the fu- into the past or look forward into the future to predict uh, some statistics about what's going to happen yeah. when things move. Yeah. Cool. So do you ever model specific <coughs> parts of the Earth or other planets, or is it always like a very theoretical setup? Oh, that's an excellent question. So most of my work thus far was focusing more on idealized setups, so we don't consider specific faults. Mm-hmm. But then the conclusions that we have could help us to understand what's happening in, in specific circumstances. Yeah, and and so, looking in in uh, looking in particular at specific faults is is very exciting, but it requires also uh, large collaboration between people who are specifically aware of these conditions governing this specific area and have done, say, a studies to understand the specific properties of of this fault and yeah. so on. So we are we are excited about any opportunity that may come up in this area, but uh, Mm -hmm. so so far our work is mainly uh, limited to understanding the mechanics and physics of how these complex systems behave. Very cool. 
Um, how did you get into this field? Okay, so I am in Cairo. I actually graduated from Cairo University. I had a degree in structural engineering, so I was interested in building design and stuff like this. But I was also theoretically inclined, so I was very fortunate to join Caltech, which is a theoretical place, and there I was capable of, of joining a group that is, uh, I found that the earthquake mechanics problem is an interesting one because it includes elements from mathematics and physics applied to a very uh, society-relevant application, yeah. mm-hmm. so it, it was a good avenue to get uh, my mathematical inclination into an application that's still at the forefront of science and uh, the further I learn about this problem I've, I found it fascinating is even from the theoretical and computation point of view because if you look for example on the largest users of blue water which is a big super one of the big supercomputers worldwide you would find that perhaps the most usage of blue water goes into calculations of general relativity, and the second top user of blue water would be people from Skek, for example, uh, like doing large-scale simulations for earthquakes to okay. understand how fault systems uh, interact and try to predict more physics-based ground motion for for seismic hazards. So, so my my I find that this problem is 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 challenging enough and I like to keep myself challenged because it's <laughs> open-ended and, and there's there's a lot of uncertainty and there are a lot of things that we still need to understand about how faults move and so on. Yeah, nice. Mm-hmm. Cool. Have you, um, having come from an engineering background, is it hard to talk to geologists sometimes or do you find that exciting and yeah. like keeps you on your toes or does it feel like you're speaking different languages ever? <laughs> Well, it wasn't easy, and it's not always easy because although there's a lot of information that has been generated in in our fields, but uh, it's sometimes confusing because some terminologies in engineering uh, would have different meaning than the same terminologies that geologists would So in any conversation that I have with geologists or others who are not, say, trained in solid mechanics, and then we have first to make sure that we are speaking. Talking about the same thing. Talking about the same thing. Do you have an example? I mean, one one term that is usually very confusing between engineers or physicists and geologists, etc., is uh, plasticity and viscosity, and they usually get intermixed, but from a mechanistic point of view, viscosity has a solid meaning related to rate dependence of some measured quantities, whereas plasticity is specific to things that are non-recoverable and producing residual strain. And so people would talk about, say, uh, plates as being viscous while they might be thinking of it as plastic oh, and stuff okay, like this. Yeah. And, and there, this could have some serious implications right. on how we interpret the results and so on. So, yeah, yeah. the precision of language yes. becomes very important exactly. like that yes. when you're talking about a simulation where you're right. yeah, or prescribing. In general, when you talk across disciplines, it's, it's usually helpful that 
we double check that we mean the same thing and yeah. and and it's okay to have different perspectives but when we talk together it's like the <laughs> universal translator right? yeah, <laughs> in Star yeah. Trek so, <laughs> so nice. yeah so, but but it's usually it's it's fun always <laughs> to talk with people who have data and people who have observations and, and geologists or definitely and experimentalists have uh, some kind the Uh, uh, ring of truth in some sense because they have observations and they measure th- if they are careful experiment then they measure things that have all kinds of complexities that we try to in order to get a successful model we need to first set up the system and and try to put some of these complexities in order to get the response that we have so yeah. so it's always very pleasant to talk with geologists and experimentalists who are also willing to open their arms for theoreticians and mathematicians yeah. <laughs> nice yeah i think it's you can get way more done that way exactly exactly <laughs> and yeah but there is that challenge of figuring out how to do it. definitely <laughs> the the collaboration actual, the, is the hard, initial but part it's of the collaboration fun. right but it's you can get a lot more done exactly. together than yeah right nice <laughs> well this okay. was really fun thanks right. for thanks, thanks a lot for Laura. it's a pleasure to see you I love, I love the interviews we've listened to because it's, it, they kind of tell a story. We're looking at different aspects of geology, but also like this whole mathematician and com- computational modeling stuff is really cool. But also just how all these people had different walks of life that brought them into this field for right. alternative different reasons and how you can use different skills to be as productive as anyone else within a field that might not seem like as conducive to your skill set like this person is with a computer modeling it's, it's really cool but I have a question like even for people who are just don't really know much about geology like just basic questions like yeah. um, what are fault lines how do they form uh, and, and, and uh, plate tectonic plates and like are those different from are those what cause fault lines and also um, like what do they mean by recharging or loading a, a fault line yeah those are really good questions so Um, I think I can answer them. We'll try. So, yeah, plate tectonics is the, you know, we have plates on the surface of the Earth that are moving. And why are they moving is a complicated question, actually. But so basically the answer is mantle convection. So deeper in the Earth, you have the core of the Earth is really hot and it's it's heating up the mantle. And, and certain parts of the mantle, in the same way you get, like, convection cell when you're, like, cooking water and it's boiling, it's, like the hot parts of the mantle rise really slowly. And people think of it, I think, as a liquid, and it's not. It's actually a solid, and that's why it's such a slow process. But you actually can get convection cells in a solid at high temperatures and pressures. So that that movement of the mantle is really what's driving plate tectonics. And so you have, like, ridges of volcanoes in the center of um, the oceans, and that creates new crust and pushes all the other crusts. And so basically you have all these plates moving, and where they bump up against each other, they're breaking, and the break is what a fault line is. So the physical break of the rocks is where the faults are and where the earthquakes all happen. Um, And so that's all driven, that is mostly driven by plate tectonics. How many major fault lines are there on Earth, you know? Not countable. 
So they're really okay. complicated. So like, you know, when we make a map, we'll draw a line and we'll say, here's the San Andreas Fault. But when you get down on the ground, awesome. it's really complicated. So if you can think about, I mean, the way a mirror breaks, you know, how many, if you said like, how many pieces did that mirror break into? The crust of the earth is just as complicated. Okay. So, you know, you can have one big crack that took the mirror out, but then there's a hundred other small ones. And also like figuring out which one's the most important one. Where's, where's the break going to be important now? Where is it going to? And so that's what makes it so hard to predict too, is like you can see three or four faults next to each other and you'll say which one is going to be the place where it actually goes next. I think this kind of brings up why it's so important to have folks that are studying it from a theoretical because you can put that into a computer before you could go map it out, right? Like And waste millions and millions of dollars too, like well, right. I think it's one of those things where like the big data, the computing power really lets you it lets you identify what's the best to study in the field. Yeah, where your your resources are more limited and you have to have a plan before you go out there. The computer kind of gives you this way to really, I don't know, digest the complexities of, of the actual situation a little better than... I can't imagine doing field work to try to figure that out, right? It just wouldn't work. It's just not feasible. <laughs> well, I mean, the, you need all of it together, right? Yeah. You need the field work to understand where the faults are in the first place. But then there's places where you can't see the faults at all. They're buried under the ground. And so then you need a computer model to help you understand so what's are, going on. Are all major mountain, li- mountain-like lines on fault lines? Like the Rockies, the Himalayas, like are those are as a result of a fault line. Overall, yeah, like mountains are created by plate tectonics, but some of them, like we have the Adirondacks here, and those are like really old, and so those aren't an active tectonic area. But then in California, you absolutely the mountains are frequently being currently pushed up or in Nepal. And they're sitting on a fault line. um, There are faults running around the mountains, basically. Yeah, Um, the Rockies are again like a more complex story. So there's other places where there's like. Um, you know, just like bo- like hot material coming up and just pushing everything up, kind of, and and like the Adirondacks right now are moving up again, and the people are kind of like, why? Um, so we don't understand why every single mountain range is where it is, but absolutely, faults and mountains go together a lot. How how much yeah. are we talking about moving up in terms of time frame? Like, what are we talking about? Millimeters per year, usually. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. So like the the rate that your you know fingernails grow is kind of the the plate tectonic movement, like, I don't know, uh, rule of thumb. Yeah. I don't know if that's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're looking at very small movement that adds up to a lot. And over, a seismic you know. event could like move it even more than what you did. Right, and so so in some places it's moving constantly, and then like we talked about before, like the earthquake, you know, it's when the fault is stuck because it has a lot of friction, so that, you know, every hundred years or something maybe it goes and it moves it a little bit, and then what we see is millions of years of accumulated movement. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and what's recharging a fault again? That's just the movement of those plates. So those plates are constantly moving. So that's what's loading the faults up is that movement. Is recharging loading? Same, yeah. Yeah, yeah. See, here's where, you know, like I say like five words that mean basically the same thing and I don't think about it. No, because your first scientist and your second scientist both said, the first one said loaded. Yeah. uh, Recharging and uh, the computational scientist said Loading, Loading. yeah, yeah. Right, and I think that could also have to do with your like background. Like in a model, you load, you give boundary conditions, and we'll say like, oh, I loaded this with a displacement or with a stress, and Mm so you know, there's different ways to think about it for sure. But if you think about it as like a burst, you can say recharging, (laughs) yeah. 
You've just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Fadaruso. You can check out old episodes of Lab Talk with Laura on any podcast distributor. Um, also hosted on iTunes, SoundCloud. Check us out on Facebook. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Labs and the Polymer Science Department. Thank you so much for listening. This was part one of a two-part episode, so come back next week to learn more about all the different ways that people study earthquakes. Um, More dispatches from the Southern California Earthquake Center meeting. Okay, have a great one. Stick around for WMUA News coming right up.